The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help, I need somebody. Help, not just anybody. Help, you know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Episode 354 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host, I'm a physician retired from practice. Our topic today is care needed by individuals with FASD and their family caregivers. Back in 2014, which we're still in as we speak, the World Health Organization published guidelines for the identification and management of substance use and substance use disorders in pregnancy. This recognized FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, as a range of physical and brain-related developmental disorders or abnormalities attributed to the effects of alcohol on the unborn child, which, as everybody knows, the medical profession calls the fetus. Now, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders last a lifetime. They don't have a cure Though some medications and behavior therapy treatments may help, but no one treatment is right for every child. The the most serious of the fetal alcohol spectrum disorders is called fetal alcohol syndrome. And syndrome means a multiplicity of effects, symptoms, signs and the rest of it. Um, The name fetal alcohol syndrome is abbreviated to FAS and that this condition may variously result in the death of the unborn child, growth defects of brain, bones, face and some organs may result in challenges for the child in learning and remembering, understanding and following directions, controlling emotions communicating and socializing, feeding and bathing, and other skills of daily life, and coordinating actions. Which is why our topic, care needed by individuals with FASD and their family caregivers, is so important for family caregivers and their family members. Now, to discuss it, our guest is David Gerry. David holds the BSc in Biology and Psychology, And he began what he calls his intensive home study of FASD as a direct result of becoming a foster parent to two children with FASD. In the year 2000, he co-founded a charity, the FASD Community Circle, Victoria, to develop programs and services for children and others with FASD. The Circle set up the first children's multidisciplinary FASD clinic on Vancouver Island, Canada. 
The Circle also set up the first multidisciplinary FASD clinic for at-risk women. David co-chairs the advisory committee of Her Way Home, a comprehensive support program for pregnant and early parenting women who struggle with substance abuse. He's also co-founded the International Living with FASD Summit, and he's associated with a Facebook support group for families raising family members with FASD, which he invites us listeners to join. So welcome to the show, David. Well, thanking you for having uh, me on and recognize this uh, importance of this topic, Gordon. Sure is important. Now, David, my first question for you is please tell us more about your life, your career, and especially your experience with family caregiving for two children living with FASD. David? Well, it began innocently enough about 15 years ago. My wife is a social worker, and um, she said at one point, would we ask me, would be willing to uh, bring these two kids home who she had worked with for several years, who had unfortunately been in six homes in 24 months. Uh, they were at the time, they came to us seven and nine years old, a brother and a sister. And as we didn't have um, kids of our own at that point, um, it was a very, very steep learning curve for us getting these ready-mades who had quite a history they brought along into our home with them. And after about a year, we began wondering, you know, they were supposed to be with us a year and they were there for more, with us for more than a decade. And we began to wonder if what we were observing was more than just having been in too many homes in their short life. And fortunately, somebody from the ministry, the Children's Protection Ministry, uh, raised a psychologist raised the possibility of FASD, which I didn't have a clue about, hadn't heard about in my schooling or anything. And because my wife was a social worker, she knew that uh, she knew the kid's mom and knew that that uh, she was uh, substance addicted. And that began our quest uh, to get a diagnosis. And um, sort of on the backs of that, it took 33. Um, 33 months from the time I began to agitate for uh, a proper diagnosis. And um, I think it's really important for our listeners to note that kids come into care or up for adoption not because of the prenatal alcohol exposure, but because a neighbor or a teacher or somebody uh, thinks there's something going on, something out of order. And in some places, like Alberta, if a child comes to the attention of child protection workers, they assume that something is going badly enough in the family and they presume prenatal alcohol or substance exposure and they look for it. So, you know, it's one of those things, like they say in business, if it can be measured, it can be managed. Right. Now, David, talking about roles, um, I, my next question is this. Would you please tell us more about the roles on the one hand of adoptive parents, which you are, and birth mothers in the roles of family caregivers for children living with FASD. David? Well, um, yes. I'd like to uh, maybe just step back a bit and say, you know, the um, birth mothers are largely absent from this conversation, and there's a, that's a whole conversation unto itself. But the estimates are that... Um, 50 to 80% of kids who come into care are prenatally exposed, so you have to wonder what's going on with their mothers. And, and as a note, sort of as general public policy, 52% of 
uh, pregnancies are unplanned, and 70 to 80 percent of mums drink, so many people are pregnant before they know it. So at the University of Washington Clinic, 56% of the kids who uh, they first saw there, the first 1,400 kids, were foster or adoptive parents, and only 22% were birth moms. So birth moms, for whatever reasons, are not part of this conversation. They feel so ostracized or discriminated or unsupported, or they're just not, they're just not there. So right. I don't have a very good answer for that, that question, uh, other than they're conspicuous in their absence. That's actually a very useful answer, isn't it? Because it points us to something which uh, needs attention. Now, I, that takes me to my next question. In the introduction of you that I just gave, you're obviously involved in many things that support family caregivers and the children and the young adults living with FASD. So please fill in any gaps that I've left by telling us more about your work supporting family caregivers for children and young adults living with FASD. David? I think I was uh, at first sort of indignant and then incensed that it took 33 months from the time we asked for a diagnosis uh, to the time that it was finally delivered. And it's a two, three, four-hour ferry ride over to Vancouver from here. So it was not inaccessible, but it wasn't easy. And in that 33 months, the kids, of course, like any other medical condition, I mean, could you imagine if as a GP you sent away for a lab, uh, your, your patient for a lab test and they had to wait 33 months? It's, it was unconscionable. So it seemed to me easier to set up the services than wait for them to be delivered. And that's why with some colleagues, we set up a charity, as you mentioned. And that charity, and an interesting point in that charity, one of the board members was a pediatrician and a couple were parents. When we got a grant, um, uh, the, the pediatrician was for using all of the money to get a diagnosis, and the parents who had, had uh, been to a clinic and hadn't found the results were too complicated. They wanted help for families to interpret. So the... Um, Involvement of the parents on that board actually steered us along a really important path. We created a job description for somebody whose job it was to go to the clinic with the parents, then go to the schools with the clinic reports and help the families leverage. So I think there's several uh, interesting points in that story. The, the advocacy on the board of the parents saying, no, we don't just want diagnosis. We want help when we get it and um, that we actually created a position which has been used to model um, there's some 53 FASD key workers in, in British Columbia that owe part of their beginnings to, to our pioneering work. I, I'd like to say, if I may, a little bit more about Her Way Home. Yes, uh, please. In, in our um, adult clinic, we saw 22 women, and... Um, Twelve of those women had 27 children, and 26 of the 27 children were in care. So that was the impetus for me to get involved uh, in an eight-year project that resulted in a wraparound supportive service for women who were pregnant and early parenting that was trauma-informed and woman-centered and inclusive. So sort of one led on to the other. And I guess... Um, the, the two clinics, the, the pediatric and the, and the women's clinic, were sort of one led on to the other. And more recently, as you mentioned, 
I've, um, with a colleague, I continue to avidly attend these conferences, and since I believe the, the best um, practice is informed by research, trying to bring all the wisdom that I'm hearing at these conferences, making it freely available to um, parents and caregivers was is sort of my mission currently. And we've created an annual event called the FASD Summit, and you can find all these experts on the web at livingwithfasd.com. Now, would you go so far as to say, and this is a loaded question, David, that the, the momentum and the initial initiative for the work you did really started because family caregivers had their voices listened to, understood, and acted upon. Is it, would that be right? Um, I suppose to the extent I, I represented uh, parents who were, um, you know, just, just entirely frustrated and uh, weren't getting the services. I didn't want to wait in line for a queue, in the queue, to get services. So, uh I, I was perhaps driven by enlightened self-interest. I didn't want to continue to struggle and for our kids to continue to struggle without the help they needed. And so that, that, that just, I was like the ever-ready bunny. I just kept going and going because it was partly to help um, our kids, but also realizing if I could help other people that they in turn can help us with our, with our challenges. Very, very important story. Thank you for saying those things. Now, it's time that we take the break. As I always say, this is where we have to pay the rent. So we're going to do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is David Gerry. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America um, Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and SharingTheBurden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. Technology is changing the way we live our lives and how we do business. On CIO Talk Radio, we talk about the benefits of technology and the great things it allows us to do, as well as its risks. Heard every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, Sunjo Gall interviews business leaders and other experts that are shaping the way we use technology. To learn more about this show, visit www.ciotalkradio.com. Keep up with the changing world of technology and listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjo Gall. Listen in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Pacific, right here on Voice America Business. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. What does a visual workplace mean to you? How does it contribute to operational excellence? And what steps do you take to put it powerfully in place? Listen to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense to find out. 
Each week, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award-winning author, shares tools and strategies to help you make the workplace to speak at a glance without saying a word. Learn to work safer, faster, better, and at far less cost no matter what business you're in. Tune in to The Visual Workplace every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and David Gerry. Our topic is care needed by individuals with FASD and their family caregivers. David, now let's talk about the challenges that FASD creates for children, young people and family caregivers. And the first question is this. What do you think are the most challenging of the challenges that FASD creates for children and young people? David? Well, at the, uh, at the simplest sort of medical biological level, it's uh, known that 70 to 80% of the kids who come into care probably have FASD or AD, uh, have, sorry, kids with FASD have ADD or ADHD. And for us, that meant every Saturday making sure we were at the library to get armloads of videos because um, um, one of the two kids in particular was like a hummingbird, just forever hovering. She had two, two speeds. She was in either overdrive or asleep. And so to be able to get anything done around the home, we, we, we really needed to have a lot of program distractions just, just to keep things going. And of note, too, you know, the University of Washington, lots of the kids that they saw uh, had concurrent conditions, you know, psychiatric conditions, oppositional defiant, PTSD. So caregivers in taking kids, these complex kids into their home, may also, you know, sort of unwittingly then become sort of the the balance of power for all, all these other conditions. And one of the things that distinguishes FASD from a lot of other conditions our listeners may be familiar with is the fact that um, kids with FASD typically have normal intelligence, but they have low adaptive functioning. And low adaptive functioning means they, they don't really understand what happened to them yesterday, and they can't generalize it to the future. So like with one of ours falling off the same tree branch uh, three times, in two years where for the neurotypical kid once would have been one trial learning and they would have moved on. Another um, very challenging part of fetal alcohol is outside they look 10 but inside they're 5. There's this huge gap between their chronological age and their developmental age. So you see them playing with 10-year-olds and you expect 10-year-old behavior but in fact they're capable of 5-year-old behavior. So that creates incredible frustration all around. Um, and uh, our, uh, our kids could speak with a fluency that you would expect of their age, but their cognitive pace and their receptive language skills were about half that. So when you told them something, they've agreed, it then seems like defiance when they, when they don't comply, when they don't do what you ask them to. And that gets very scary. You can imagine the situation, and we found out the hard way, uh, when you are crossing the street and you say, look both ways, well, if a child turns their head, looks in left and looks right, 
um, they've just complied with your request, but did they really understand what you meant? No. And so it's those sorts of invisible brain functions and dysfunctions that you as a parent have to be on your guard all the time. And, um, you know, the, one of the biggest challenges, I think, for families is there's such a huge mismatch between the expectations in school and kids' age. And so the research shows that something like 60% of kids with FASD drop out of school or have disrupted school experiences, and so many families wind up either having to pay for private school or, um, home, indeed, homeschooling. So it's, it's one of those paradoxes. They look normal, but they're quite a bit younger. They're normal intelligence, uh, but they don't, they don't learn when they fall out of the tree. They, they right. speak better than they listen. Now, I want you to tell us more about the, what you think are the most challenging of the challenges that FASD creates for family caregivers. You've already mentioned several, but bring that picture to us, please. Challenges for family caregivers. David? Yes. Um, it's, it's obviously a, a many-layered topic. Um, you do want your child to be successful in school because... Um, they do need to learn the social skills to interact on the playground, in the classroom, and in the hallways. And yet, too often what uh, happens is we, there's an expression in the FASD community about the last one picked and the first one picked on. They don't really get what's going on around them, and they want to belong, and they want to succeed, but they just can't keep up with their peers. And so, you know, the, it looks like about grade nine, um, they're starting to drop out of school. You know, they, they, their sense of self-worth is diminished. And then so the job of the parents is, is so much more complex because really what you're seeing is it's not that they won't do what you're, you're saying. It's that they can't. Their brain circuitry isn't organized in a way that they understand when you said cross the street safely, look this way and that way. You meant um, calculate a whole bunch of complex moving objects and figure out if it's safe. So one of the things I'd like to invite our um, listeners to do is uh, Diane Malvin is, is somebody that's quite famous in the world of FASD, and she has a series of questions called Questions to Ask Service Providers um, to help um, people uh, when they're, they're approaching doctors and others determine uh, the kinds of questions they should be asking that if, if it's a good fit with their kids' needs and the professional they're approaching. So our listeners could go to livingwithfasd.com forward slash parents and get that resource. Uh, Diane is a trainer and a, a mom who's raised her own kids with FAS. And I guess the last one that's so confounding, um, 92, the research shows 92% of uh, people with FASD wind up with mental health conditions. And unfortunately, the, the pinnacle of that profession, the psychiatrist, have, research has shown that they don't really understand it and are not necessarily well-trained and equipped. So the, the caution there is psychiatrists and, and many others who might otherwise, you might otherwise with other conditions turn to, you have to keep your wits about you and trust, trust that you know your child, trust that you, it's, it's okay for you to ask the kind of questions that are suggested in Diane's, you know, like you, you need to be a very uh, discerning consumer of, of services that are being proffered to you to help you raise your child. And I guess the last, the last point is um, thinking about the goal, not the kid is going to leave home at 19, but interdependence is the goal. And one of our 
speakers this year, Jody Culp talks about a braided cord, being conscious to, you know, include the grandfather and the uncles and so on through the generations, thinking that support will be needed over their lives. And when you're not there to advocate and help and support them, you need to have consciously uh, made this braid of weaving people into their lives who can help and support them. Right. Now, this is a, this is a difficult question, I warn you, but it's an important one, as I know you know. The challenges, the most challenging of the challenges that FASD creates for young people who, because of their FASD-related challenges that you've been talking about, become involved with the justice system along with their family caregivers. So what are the most challenging of the challenges that arise for them all when the child has fallen into the hands, if I may put it this way, of the justice system? David? Yes. Well, I think that's a great question, and, and um, there's a really hopeful result in Germany, and, and it was sort of a, an inadvertent finding. Um, they were doing, um, repeating some of the long-term research that's been done looking at lifelong outcomes for people diagnosed with FASD, and where they found the uh, involvement with the justice system was less than half, like 60% of the people in that uh, University of Washington study uh, had encounters involvement with the, with the law, uh, where it's more like 25% in Germany. So when you say, wow, you know, how, how can we have that here? What, what are they doing right in Germany that they're not doing? And it's a very sort of abstract but interesting explanation. In Germany, you uh, are emancipated. You're considered technically to be an adult, an adult at 19, but really not a fully developed uh, citizen until you're 26. So if a child has special needs or whatever and they remain in the home as a foster bio or adoptive parents, the state recognizes that and continues to support that child. So that extra seven years uh, is believed to be what's the, the highly protective factor in Germany that they have such a dramatically lower rate of involvement in the criminal justice system by, um, by those with FASD. And um, I think it's uh, helpful to note that typically the first involvement with the law for the person with FASD is crimes of property, that is theft. If you think about it, the, the notion of ownership is a very abstract thing. If I'm not standing beside my bike and you come along and take it, well, how do you know it was my bike? That's a very, ownership is a very abstract and therefore invisible value that um, if I'm a concrete thinker, you're a concrete thinker, it's how hard for you to imagine, let alone see the connection between the bike standing there, I'm in a hurry, I have to get somewhere. And unfortunately, it's those kinds of things that lead to the revolving door of justice, where the, the first involvement with the, uh, the criminal justice system tends to be crimes of property. So it's also, you know, a contributing factor. Parents do their best, but kids drop out of school, and as soon as kids drop out of school, you know, the, the parents are on call 24-7, right? You don't even have that time where you know your kid is safe and secure in the school. They're, they're doing whatever. So um, also there is there's a real problem that the um, kids with FASD are very gullible, highly suggestible, and eager to please. So you get a 
a very young person with FASD encountering a highly trained criminal investigator who's good at extracting uh, incriminating statements. So one of the, you know, an extreme example of that is a man convicted of double murder. It turns out he was in jail the whole time. So this this tendency towards false confessions is, is, is a real stumbling block. And one of the last points I would make is that University of Washington realized and came up with these cards, information cards, for youth with FASD to carry to give police to say, this person doesn't understand when you ask him to waive his right, doesn't understand, and can self-incriminate, you know, call this number if you want further information. So if you go to our resource page on our website, I'd really welcome your um, parents to download these cards because it's one way to try and give a little bit of protection to reduce the initial engagement or involvement with the criminal justice system. Right. Very, very important points. Now, we at the end of this particular segment. Um, we're coming back, but we'll take the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is David Gerry. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We will be back. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert, where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Dialogue is the single most powerful leadership tool we have to make a difference in the world. Leading conversations with host Cheryl Esposito creates a place for that dialogue. Tune into the Voice America Business Channel every Friday as Cheryl hosts new conversations among leaders from around the world in business, government, art, economics, and social change. We'll explore big ideas and everyday actions and learn how their own leadership has led them to discover a newfound sense of possibility in the world. Leading conversations with Cheryl Esposito, bringing big thinkers together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. Tune in to A Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and David Gary 
Our topic is care needed by individuals with FASD and their family caregivers. David, let's now talk about support for children, for young and for family caregivers confronting the FASD challenges you've highlighted. So first off, David, what do you see as the most effective types of support for children and young people confronting the challenge FASD creates and that you were discussing before? David? I was excited this year to uh, attend the FASD conference in Vancouver and hear a researcher who was doing research in South Africa, which has the highest rates of FASD in the world right now. And um, they're finding that um, they're... Uh, the, the moms who are giving birth to these babes, that the nutritional status of mom and babe and uh, the degree of connection between them is what is uh, going to uh, project that child into success, uh, you know, a successful adulthood. So you can't do anything about the fact mom drank during pregnancy, but um, having a um, a good, strong connection with, you know, somebody's nurturing, in other words, The science is telling us what we already know. Parenting is critical, especially critical for brain growth in these kids who, you know, set out um, uh, with these these prenatal exposures. Um, It sounds almost blazingly obvious, but the researchers have found that there's five protective factors that most of us would take for granted, living in a stable, nurturing home, not having to change homes frequently, not being a victim of violence, getting a diagnosis by six, And like every other medical condition, the earlier the diagnosis, the better. So teaching your kid, um, FASD is what I have. It's not who I am. I I know a young person, when they were quite young, would sort of say, don't call me an FASD kid again. It's what I have. It's not who I am. Call me that again. I'm going to punch you kind of thing, right? It's about the person first. So that really speaks to growing up in a stable, nurturing home. And so what? the parents need to continue to give um, kids the stable nurturing home that that really is I think the nub of this question and so how can we how can we better support parents than we are now and an example of maybe them starting to realize and do it right is in some districts or areas of Alberta instead of the the say monthly visit from the social worker who's checking in on the uh, foster adoptive kid that instead of spending 10 minutes with the parents and 50 minutes with the kid to see how the kid is, that really it's in the kid's long-term best interest that the uh, stability remain in that placement, they remain in that home, and so that it's more important for the system to know how well the parent is doing because the parent is really the guarantee of that continued placement in that home, and that really is the key to the kids. Uh, moving again is, is not going to solve the problems so I, I think that uh, comes back to my thesis is supporting the parents in the way they need to be supported so they can support the kids. Right. Now, that's my next question. And you've already led into it yourself. But what do you see as the most effective types of support for family caregivers confronting the types of challenges that you've been describing that FASD creates? Effective types of support for family caregivers. David? Um, Well, I have to tell a little bit of a story here. Um, When we went uh, to our first, when we figured out it was FAS and went to our first parent support group, 
all the people there were parenting older kids, and we were horrified at all the things they were reporting and all the things that were going on. So we didn't go back. We sort of arrogantly, we now know, thought, well, we're smarter, we're better educated, we love the kids more, we'll, we'll just somehow we'll do a better job. And then, you know, when that sort of freight train hit us, when things started to go awry and we needed help, we realized we needed to be proactive ahead of time, that is, looking, looking for help. And what that would look like to your listeners in a very practical sense is assembling the documents and, uh, say, going down to the police station and talking to the officer of the watch and getting it logged uh, on their computers and in their files so that if the child was lost or ran away, um, it's a highly different um, priority for the police if you're talking about a runaway child or a runaway teenager. So although the teenager with FS may be chronologically 14, developmentally they're around seven, and when the police can be convinced they're looking for a seven-year-old, they will look for the seven-year-old. And so it's those kinds of things that you need to be... We were resistant at first. We didn't think that was going to happen to us. We, we just were kind of Pollyanna, I guess. We had our head in the sand. Um, Maybe a, um, uh, another example of that, uh, one of the speakers on the summit this year is Mary O'Connor, who uh, it's very, very well recognized in the research that um, kids who are prenatally alcohol exposed are really at risk and prone to um, substance use, particularly alcohol, having been sort of marinated in it. They're really at risk. And Mary O'Connor has come up with a really uh, effective project called Project Step Up, which not only teaches teenagers skills about how to resist and how to uh, resist peer group pressure and so on, but gives parents the right information and skills and cues. And part of her advice, and the reason I interviewed her, is she recognized that if kids aren't to drink, they need the parents to know what to do and how to support them. And one of her pieces of advice was, uh, they still need as much supervision. They just don't know it, and they'll be resistant to it. So you have to, as a parent, get more subtle in the way in which you're supervising. But the, the concluding note there is 93% of the parents participating said, yes, they'd recommend it. Yes, it was helpful. So it's these kinds of, of programs, I think, that you know, augur for success. We have a wonderful example up in the, the uh, Whitehorse, probably the oldest standing uh, uh, residential uh, project focused on the needs of people with FASD is called Options for Independence. And it's those kinds of things that as we get older and we expect our child, our kids to outlive us, we want, we want to have those kinds of resources and facilities like Options for Independence available so that, you know, we can, um, we, we, we can go peacefully and not worry they're going to wind up under the government's care in prison. Now, talking of prison, um, I'm going back to the question that I asked you in the last segment, which is about the challenges that are created when a child, a young adult with FASD-related challenges, becomes involved with the justice system. What are the most effective types of support for young people in that situation and for their family caregivers? David? Um. There is a wonderful project that started not as a project but just as an attempt to help a boy in grade 11 uh, in Lethbridge, and it's called the Lethbridge Community Justice 
project, and people can Google it, and they have been 85% successful in diverting youth with FASD out of prison on their first encounter uh, with the law. And one of the organizers, Donna Bull, has a great axiom, which I, I think is, is so illustrative. It doesn't take money to change people's minds. In other words, the Crown, the defense, the judge, all the court clerks, the police, everybody get paid whether youth is convicted or not. And um, that if, if people were to think about their roles differently, um, you still go through the court process. So if, if it is, you know, especially it's a very, very serious crime, you, you still have that opportunity of confinement or incarceration. But if, if, if it's not absolutely necessary, then if you put the structures in place, the, um, the youth doesn't have, to be, uh, doesn't have to go to jail, and most of them do not reoffend. So they have a dedicated officer on that police force because they recognize it's so important. And the part that I really want to emphasize for your uh, audience today is the people who put this project together realize the primacy and the importance of the parental role. And so um, two important things, they recognize that anywhere from three weeks to three months from the time a youth with FASD blows out of a foster bio or adoptive home, they're usually in front of the courts. They're in trouble. The, the family has been that protective factor to keep them out of the legal system. And when that breaks down, um, the school sort of, it means people in schools thinking differently about what's the purpose of education. If the parents just get enough of a break to put their feet up while the kid is safe in school, then that preserves the placement and keeps the... Um, keeps the, the placement from breaking down. So that's an important piece in terms of the parents. And the other thing in terms of the court, if there's a community sentence and the parents are already way overstretched and then they have to add to their duties um, supervision, some sort of court-ordered supervision, the community can break. So they were careful not to, again, because it was, you know, the adage of doesn't take money to change minds. Crown had to get on board, the judge had to be get on board, defense had to get on board. So, you know, it took a lot of collaboration, but it's, it's, it's a, a project that's now been going hmm, maybe 20 years, and it's very successful, but it started with a different approach. And I guess uh, two concluding points, you know, the kids stay in the homes longer in Germany, and it protects them from involvement with the criminal justice system. And Jody Culp's idea of the braided cord you know, the, uh, having lots of the supports around the family, around the caregivers to support them so they can continue to support the, uh, the, the youth as they go through their, their 21 day and 10 the next and their 19 one day and 7 the next. You know, it's, it's very capricious and it's very wearing. Now, I just want to go to a particular detail that you've mentioned, and that is that the kids may look you just said 19, but in fact be seven. Um, when there's a situation in which the police are looking to arrest or the possibility of arresting someone for what's perceived as a crime, it must be very difficult uh, for them to understand in those sorts of circumstances that it's a seven-year-old that's misbehaved and not a 19-year-old. Have I stated that correctly, David? Yes. 
And, you know, interestingly enough, the RCMP um, took a very forward-looking role and developed a, a pretty comprehensive course for boot camp in uh, Regina that they were putting three people through. If 25%, and that's conservative, of people in Canadian prisons have FASD, they don't get there on their own. They go through court. And how do they get to the court? It's through the police. So the Vancouver City Police took that program, and uh, they had up to one-third of their police force um, trained in FASD. And when they did a cost-benefit analysis, there was one lad in foster care who they had, you know, had to send a cruiser like 30 times in six weeks or something. And when you start doing the cost of two-man, the cruiser, and so on, the operating cost of the police of this young man, when they approached it differently, when the families approached it differently, it, it, that cycle shut down. So, right. Um, there, there is training. There is pockets of excellence like the Lethbridge Community Justice likes this program that the Vancouver City Police was in, uh, engaged with, but somehow priorities, management changes, and so on, and yet it's, you know, women are continuing to drink at, a binge, at the binge level since 1991. So, you know, we're going to continue to have kids with FAS, yep. so we need yep. to respond differently. Yeah, that's a very good point to go into the break because we're going to talk about some of those things in the uh, next segment. So we'll take the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Averley, and my guest is David Gerry. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels, CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio, and sharingtheburden.ca. Please stay with us. We're coming back. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Tired of lackluster results with your marketing? Craving more leads in your business? Tune into the Mojo Marketing Edge with the team behind Mojo Global Marketing, Ira Rosen and Corey Michael Sanchez. Winners of the Marketer of the Year, they will show you how to generate daily leads, build databases of raving fans, and close deals faster than ever before. See what's hot right now and how you can tap into it to generate an endless supply of customers and clients. The Mojo Marketing Edge can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, 
please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and David Gerry. Our topic is care needed by individuals with FASD and their family caregivers. David, now let's talk about what more you would like to do and to see done to improve support for children, young people and family caregivers confronting FASD related challenges. So my first question is, what more would you like to do to improve support for children and young people and family caregivers? Good question. I think we're sort of on a collision course here. We're like the Titanic and the iceberg we're headed at is FASD. Um, we know for certain for more than 40 years that alcohol is a trottage and causes these irreversible changes in the baby, and yet rate of binge drinking has not changed since 1991. And we've relatively recently also learned that the sperm, the male contribution, is a factor of FASD. So those are two very powerful um, uh, pieces of, of learning. We also know very recently that FASD is epigenetic, which means it gets carried forward through the generations uh, in humans. So these three facts means that we need uh, to a different approach rather than just downloading it onto the shoulders of the caregivers. We're on a collision course. The stats are something like $2 million added lifetime costs for everyone with FASD to taxpayers. So we're spending the money already, whether we're warehousing people in FASD or high numbers of kids in foster care. So, um, and I think it's the frontline caregivers who right now are shouldering the burden of that, and their, their quality of life and their finances are sort of in jeopardy, and they, they love the kids and in goodwill, but so many of them just are absolutely exhausted and I think it's, it's um, unfair, almost preposterous to ask these group of people to sort of stand up and start advocating for better services and so on. They're doing all that they can. And my thought here is what if the Canadian Medical Association followed their counterparts in the Canadian Bar Association at their annual general meeting and said to the Canadian government, actually, this is more serious. We think it should be part of a national strategy so it's addressed properly. What if all our national unions, teachers, nurses, probation, police officers, started to agitate for change? Um, and then when it comes uh, election time, that it become an issue because, you know, it, it to me sort of feels like parents have got their hands full. If they take their hand off the wheel to try and go to meetings and organize, they're, they're already at the point of burnout. So what are we going to do? Um, to address this problem, I and mean, still 2 to 5% of babies are being born uh, alcohol-exposed or drug-exposed. Um, what are we going to do? The, there isn't much slack left in the uh, sort of in the rope as right. much of the burden is being bared, borne by uh, parents, but there isn't diagnostic facilities, so they don't know without a diagnosis. They don't get the right supports in school without right support from the school, the kids with self-esteem suffers, they're, they drop out, they're at risk for joining gangs, addiction, and starting the cycle again. They, they have serial kids, the kids go into care. So it's, um, it's 
recognizing that we're like the Titanic right now. What we're doing is arguing about at what speed we should hit the iceberg rather than, uh, than making a change, a real change, of course, and change in the way we regard drink and drinking and, uh, and addictions generally. Good. Good analogy. Now, I wanted to push you a bit more. You talked about um, action uh, on the part of what I'll call the professions, the professional communities, doctors, nurses, and so on. And that's valuable, no question. But there's a captain of this Titanic, and it's called government. What more would you like to see done by government to improve the support in the ways that you're talking, talking about and describing? David? Well, I think uh, the problem is exemplified here in BC, where several years ago our premier uh, was done and spent overnight in jail for drunk driving. We we have this kind of um, in BC, the government makes two point eight billion or two point something billion uh, profit, which goes into general uh, coffers. So they don't want to kick that that goose that seems to lay these golden eggs, right? The, it just goes into the coffers of general revenue. So the, we have such a complex and convoluted relationship to alcohol, and if we actually just, you know, like you said, look at the World Health Day, then they attribute 40% of all mental health conditions to, you know, related to alcohol. If we start looking at the true cost of alcohol, you know, in Alaska for every dollar the state makes, they figure they, a study showed they spend something like 36 or $38 in all the fallout costs. So it would, it had twice, there had, three times there have been motions in Canadian Parliament to label alcohol, but th- those motions die. So there, there, there has to be a real um, candid conversation about re- what the real benefits are and what the real harms are. And at that, at that level, uh, people will vote for it in the House of Commons, but when it comes to getting it, you know, getting the uh, the legislation passed, there isn't a stomach for it. So it really, I think, has to be a change of heart. Uh, I, I think it'll need a new skipper on the bridge to, to, to change direction <laughs> because the, yes. the, the, the current, it's not only the, the current skipper, but all the officers on the bridge are, are sort of, you know, want to tweak things a little bit and appease whoever. But if there's enough people who are saying, we want action, the, the politicians will come on side. So, you know, I guess, unfortunately, I'm cynical, but, you know, the, it, it's the case that the parents of kids with autism went all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, yeah and that's right. There isn't, there isn't a comparable body lobbying, and therefore, you know, the, the, the voice of the parents of kids with autism were heard, the voice... As you heard, the biological moms aren't present. Foster parents right. have to be taken. David, I'm just going to have to stop you there because, unfortunately, we're running out of time. And I just want to ask you one final question, sure. uh, which is crucial. Sorry to interrupt you, but tyranny of time. David, the question, what is your message for family caregivers who've recently learned that the child that they are caring for may have to live their lives with FASD? What's your message? I would say without hesitation that um, just as we don't withhold uh, other serious medical diagnoses, we don't withhold uh, a diagnosis of FASD thinking we're protecting the child. Uh, Like kids with juvenile diabetes, they can um, learn to manage, understand, and monitor their insulin, giving kids the information.
information so they can advocate for themselves about the condition that they have. Um, helps them to understand the potholes they could steer for and how they might steer around them. And, you know, again, I said this earlier that the um, helping the child understand, you know, well, that guy, he needs a cane. He's got a, he's got a bad back. That person has an injury. You know, everybody has something. And that kids grow up with the notion that I have a problem. I am not the problem. Something right. happened to me when I was just teeny. I, I was just a tiny little egg the size of a pin. There was no way I had control over what my mother consumed. And I guess right. the, the piece of good, second to last point, the good news is that parents keep in mind that the research is suggesting myelination of the brain does occur. So there is good news. Yes, it's a rough ride through the teens and the early 20s. Hold on. It is a rough ride. Rough ride. Rough Going to have to... David, I'm sorry to do this to you because it's an important answer, but we, we're going to run out of time and get clipped off. So what I want to say to you is this. First of all, thank you. And secondly, for the work you've done and are continuing to do, every, every success for everyone's sake, the children, the parents, the young people, society, and the challenge and the problem. So all strength to you. Now, I want to say thank you also to our listeners and to stress that we'd like to hear from you, um, you know, your comments on this episode. Now, just a quick mention, with Family Caregivers Unite, we're starting a new research project called Qualitative Research, and it's to find out what you, our listeners, think about important topics or your experience with the kind of topics that we've been talking about, just like this present one, um, because we want to know what you think and what you experience. So please email me to hear more or to get involved. Our next episode will be a family caregiver's story of caring for FASD. Please join us, same time, same on spot on the internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being around. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 